you've got answers, but if you're looking for questions, well, you're going to have to ask Deep Thought. We take a trip through life, the universe, and everything as we celebrate the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Shh! Don't tell anyone, but we've seen A Quiet Place Part 2. Is it worth shouting about? Jupiter's Legacy bites the dust after just one season. Should Netflix have given Mark Miller's soups another shot? I'm Dave Bradley. I'm Tanavi Patel. I'm Richard Edwards. And there's all this plus mischief, pushing daisies going apocalyptic, and planning a trip to Disneyland in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast that's mostly harmless. Hello. Hello Hi. there. Well, we said before that it's been two years, two years since the last Marvel movie, but wow. they have been spoiling us on TV on <laughs> Disney+. Plus. So after WandaVision and The Falcon and The Winter Soldier, we've now got Loki uh, starring Thor's problematic brother um started this week what do you think of it i thought it was great with all the marvel tv shows we've seen sort of a slightly different tone and a different style although they all sort of kind of deal with in some respects i think the grief of the characters it's sort of starting to, mm. to feel to me you know they're all kind of sort of grieving after the uh, the end of events so it takes a little while for loki to get there but but it's yeah it's it's sort of a wonderfully quirky introduction to the marvel multiverse which i think we might see more of in phase four but you know the the, the time variance authority is well you know we're we've seen a little bit of something similar in the umbrella academy in the last year with the temps very similar yeah <laughs> but you know there's a few things like that i was you know it's, it's it does go back to the comics the time variance authority first appeared in thor back in 1986 i think and mobius is, is a character from the comics um but you know things things like i was you know i, I devoured books like hb uh, piper's paratime police when i was a kid and stuff like that so the, the idea of, of kind of you know an agency designed to keep time on track is is, is something we've seen before it's still great it's got an, an unusual um feel to it it sort of sets up i think the the rest of the series the the first episode is as we introduce Loki having been captured um, immediately after escaping from the incidents of uh, Avengers Endgame, as he steals the Tesseract and leaps away, only we see to immediately be captured by the Time Variance Authority who delete that um, branch of the timeline. Uh, and then it kind of goes and, and sets up uh, Loki for, for a future adventure, presumably helping the Time Variance Authority track down another version of himself. Um, so it felt like a lot of setup in this one, but there's a lot to unpack in there. There's just loads of little detail oh, yeah. and things to, to mm-hmm. look at. Yeah, I thought it was excellent, and it, it felt it felt like you you're about to watch another a sort of MCU movie because mm. it. I mean, the fact that it even took sort of kind of scenes from from Avengers as well made it feel more so like that. And then suddenly you enter the time, um, the TVA headquarters, which is that Kafka esque sort of mm. very kind of sixties bold, weird bureaucratic. Yeah. Well, it's, Brazil, isn't it? it's very Brazil. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I was thinking it's the Time Bureau from Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We've all exactly. seen it in some way, shape or form. But how Loki gets introduced to it, I think, is fantastic. Um and he's even though he's the god of mischief and loves chaos, he's completely thrown by it mm-hmm. and you know doesn't know what's going on even asks whether he's a robot he's not entirely sure um (laughs) (laughs) and so to see him go through all that and then obviously you said to see then have his life story sort of um screened in front of him and the emotions that that sort of brings to him was was you know a sudden sort of switch of tone but it really but a really relevant one and uh and it's it's really sort of um tugging at the heartstrings to see Loki 
in sort of at almost like in a vulnerable position. Yeah. Whereas mm, we know totally. and where Sh- they showing tend- him his mother's death was just a bit cruel, wasn't it? Wasn't you it? Know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit bit tad harsh. I've no no known Wilson for five minutes and he's already doing that. I'm like, wow. Um and that's the other thing. And then on top of it, then going, Oh, can you work with me now? It's a lot of setup, but at the same time, and you, you, they're obviously unraveling quite a bit, and there's a bit of exposition. But at the same time, they kind of keep the mystery of the place. I mean, I love that shot when they come out of the headquarters and they look into—I don't know what world they're in—but right, it's just like that in, whole yeah. spacey, futuristic super city. And he's like, "I thought there was no magic because it does <laughs> look magical." <laughs> Right. It also looks a little yeah. bit, um, I don't know, Fifth Element or something with this sort of flying yellow cars yeah, going throughout. Oh, exactly. This, right? I know, the flying cars, of course, yeah. Well, I think in terms of exposition, it has a brilliant trick up its sleeve that it lifts from Jurassic Park, which is that cartoon, oh. the Miss Minutes cartoon, yes, which is basically Mr. DNA. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's just, here we are, we're going to give you all the information we need to give you, but we're going to do it in the style of a Fritz Freeling cartoon yeah. from the 60s. Yeah. Um, and it, well, like it just explains Barbera everything story. you need to know. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's, it is an interesting world as well because, yeah. you know, this is a new direction for Marvel. You know, Marvel's taken us to space before. They kind of started to do magic, which they did in Doctor Strange, and they kind of went more into in WandaVision. But this idea of this organization that exists out of time that is clearly incredibly powerful, so powerful that they use the Infinity Stones as paperweights. I know. It's really hard. Genius. It yeah. is genius. It is kind of. It's, it's all. I mean, in the show, it sort of feels like a little bit of a, a of a gag. But also, I just you know, it, it, it was a little bit of a kick in the chest because it sort of it's it just diminishes the power of those things that literally characters died across a twenty yeah. to a twenty movie arc that we were watching yeah. for. And it's like oh, but and it, it goes, oh, and there's a part of oh, yeah, exactly. Has this happened like loads of times? And it's just nothing to them that people. I mean, how many times did the Avengers? Yeah tried to do what they did and were stopped and the timeline was deleted and they just yeah. kept the Infinity Stones in a drawer. Like, You've oh, got to wonder. Yeah. yeah. But it also makes, how are they, I mean, how? what are these TVA people? Because they can touch it. Like, they touch the Tesseract and nothing happens, right? The Infinity Stone, you know, whereas other people mm. would, like, incinerate. So I don't even know if they're, like, they look human, but are they? I have I, no idea. I think they look human, but aren't. I mean, obviously, one of them didn't know what a fish was. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we do know as well that they were created by the timekeepers, these ancient beings. And I think we've seen the timekeepers in the episode beyond the cartoon. Do you think? Uh, yeah, okay. because, you know, you've got the judge. Uh, yeah. Judge uh, Ravonna Ray- Renslayer, who I keep calling Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I say. But uh, you know, she she was wearing a sash, right. and then there were another two guys wearing sashes as well. There were just three characters in the episode. Oh, okay. The, the judges, woman, two guys um, walking around in the TVA, and obviously it's the three timekeepers we saw were a woman and two guys. Yeah, that's interesting. So, that's an interesting theory. What do you guys think about where it started? Like the way it. Pick, where it picked up did you expect that that's where it would go from yeah totally because well obviously spoilers one loki is dead i mean there was the loki who died in infinity war uh, at yeah. the hands of thanos and you know that yeah. i think there were rumors of this loki tv show when that film came out and it's like well how, how's that going to work and obviously they created this lifeline in endgame where the earlier loki from 2012 who had just been captured by the avengers having unleashed the chitauri on new york was able to escape using the Tesseract because of 
Captain America and Ant-Man and Hulk and Iron Man going back to 2012 to recover an Infinity Stone. So it was the mm-hmm. perfect way to start a TV show. I thought there was going to be more of him running around making mischief before yeah. the TVA caught him, but they were straight on him. They were straight yeah. on him. I really think that the TVA are the perfect adversary for Loki. You know, the mm. guy who loves chaos put in this, this the, the organization of order. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. He, he's completely flummoxed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I mean, especially because well, he hasn't got his powers as well. Mm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, and so it's a whole big change of, of how... I, I'm really curious to see how they will get him to work with him. Whatever, however they do it, any excuse to get him facing off against Mobius, Owen Wilson, it's got to be worth it. E- even in the time they have together, they were just brilliant. It was yeah. just two guys in a room and just utterly captivating. Yeah, they totally. great together. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen Owen Wilson on screen. Um, but he, he totally fits that character. Yeah. And yeah, I, he was I'm, great. I'm, I'm not sure if they did some sort of chemistry test between the two, but my God, like they, mm-hmm. they are really, I, I could watch a whole episode of just them in the room. Got Loki doing that completely over the top Shakespearean sort of bravado mm. nonsense threats and, and just Mobius, this kind of, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, it's you know it's, it's a fascinating setup isn't it i i i i love all that time travel stuff and the the there's some great sort of scenes of of other timelines and other worlds the fact that it kind of flashes back and has up on screen you know like france in the 16th century or whatever and there's just a kind of weird and then there's all the sort of anachronistic stuff like the the, the blueberry bubblegum whatever whatever it is kablooey mm. i just love all that it's just i mean there wasn't a lot of revelation in that episode but just teeing up so much stuff for the next time Mm. And then the D.B. Cooper thing where, with that the hijacking funny. of the plane. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> I didn't see that coming at all. Even when the uh, when the flight attendant started calling him Mr. Cooper, I just kind of went with it. And then it wasn't until he bailed out and got yanked away by um, Heimdall that I was like, oh, that D.B. Cooper. It was such a big sequence, really, for just a, a gag. You know, a gag it, it set up something that's going to be huge <laughs> and they just wanted to make a joke. <laughs> Which, yeah. which I think bodes well. I think as well, it looks like it's going to be full of the sort of callbacks that really characterised One Division, the sort of Marvel references. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a hint um, in that stained glass window that there's a devil there. Maybe that's Ooh, Mephisto. Mephisto. Remember, Maybe, everyone yeah. went a little bit crazy about the sighting of a bug on a window in One Division. <laughs> Turned out not to be anything, as far as we know. So maybe <laughs> Mephisto will finally get his uh, time on screen oh. here. Or maybe we're just going crazy for theories again, and nothing's going to um, nothing's going to come of it. Well, the thing is, though, Marvel are going to be happy with that because the more people talk about the show, the, the better the show's going to do. I, I thought it was really nice, actually, for a show that is the ultimate water cooler TV. They had a water cooler in the closing credits. <laughs> it's Seems almost like telling people, funny. Funny. and now <laughs> <laughs> it's got uh, the, yeah, the credits were great again. It's it's a little bit you know still that sort of slightly showing little, little clips of things like like they did with the Wolf Winter Soldier. But the music's great on this, and just the use of the different fonts in the logo thing is so delightfully creepy. I love it. It's it's just you know it's, I thought I thought it was a great uh, you know uh, intro and, and outro sequence. Two questions. Are we assuming then that because of the sacred timeline essentially mopped up all the other timelines and so there should really just be one, that there can't be or there shouldn't be any doppelgangers? So any doppelgangers that are uh, are there are are supposed to be erased? 
Well, unless they've come back, like in the in presumably in the sacred timeline, the kind of prime timeline, we know in the Avengers Endgame, we know that like Captain America travels back in time yeah. and does all the things back in New York in the thing. But presumably that's permitted as long as it sort of writes itself. Um, I guess that's why the implication is that TV allows some stuff to happen. Hey, you know, there was um, a, a conversation that the, maybe the Captain America we see right at the end of Avengers Endgame isn't the same Captain America as we went back in time, that it's one from a different parallel timeline. Well, the way that time travel works in the Marvel Universe is different to Back to the Future. And I think they say, don't they, uh, when Hulk explains it, that you, when you go back, you're setting up a new timeline. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah, necessarily yeah. carry on in the same way. Mm. I, think, I think the really cool thing about this is we don't know how any of this works. Michael Waldron, the head writer on this, when I interviewed him for SFX, actually said um, that you know bringing the timelines together was a really complicated thing to do, and they had loads of sort of timey wimey diagrams with uh, like things branching off on post it notes hit all over the place. So they are establishing something entirely new, and the idea of the multiverse, which we know is going to be part of Marvel. I mean, the, the title of the next Doctor Strange movie which michael waldron is the writer on actually um it's called yeah. doctor strange in the multiverse of madness and i think kevin feige the the big marvel boss has said as well that this really sets up other marvel films so right. it's not yeah. just going to be a standalone it's kind of a, a big deal which is great for disney plus if they want more subscribers well yeah 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 and it's been a very strange new show on netflix sweet tooth what do you think of it it's an eight episode show and i've watched six episodes so I'm, right. I'm i'm well in so i'll try not to give you any spoilers and, and i haven't reached the end yet it's based on a dc comic actually a vertigo imprint oh, really? comic from from about 15 years ago and i didn't know that when i went into mm. it so it's not quite what i was expecting the trailer was interesting and the, but if you read the description of it it kind of says that there's a half boy half deer character who's going on a journey across a sort of wasteland America and it sort of makes it sound like it's going to be a um like a modern fairy tale particularly with the title Sweet Tooth it's way more uh, way more apocalyptic than that I I was surprised about how in many respects how kind of bleak it is it's more whimsical than something like The Road obviously it'd be hard not to but but actually it's got it sort of shares quite a lot of DNA with that you know it's it's really sort of about a man and a, and a boy crossing America after a great pandemic has reduced people to kind of um sort of quite tribal ways um and it's it's so it's very strange and kind of uh, on top of that there, there are some just really odd things about it there's a pandemic that has swept the earth which i wasn't necessarily in the mood for since we're still in lockdown here yeah. that was the last <laughs> thing i wanted to see really. no, it's right. about the uh the fictional h5g9 strain causing mass death um uh around the world um and and what it calls the great crumble um but really it's sort of a collapse of civilization um but there's That's sort of some odd things. Title, that's, though. Yeah, the Great Crumble, right? So it's got that, that sort of sweet tooth thing again. So when they started saying that, again, I thought, is it all going to be? Is it all going to be yeah. candy gags? But uh, um, yeah. uh, but but at the same time as that happens, um, human babies start being born as hybrids, as animal hybrids. So there's a there's um, that that happens, and also there's sort of a weird outbreak of these purple flowers, these sort of slightly poisonous purple flowers, which appear to spring up in places where people are dying of this um, this odd strain of this virus. Um, so it's it's all a little bit kind of um, hyper-real and a bit sort of m magical realist Wait, about so it you, as well. So you're telling me that the half-boy came was came out with antlers? Sort of. Oh, they, my they, God, they, that sounds like terrible. Little nubs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. There, are, there are ones that are born kind of like with, with sort of pig ears and, and sort of feathers and stuff like that. But it's not quite clear whether the, um, the hybrid children 
are the cause of the pandemic or related to it in any way or maybe a, you know a symptom of it or any of these things so there's lots of question marks over things but it gets quite dark the way i've described it again yeah it's, it's, it sounds like it's gonna be quite silly in fact what almost immediately happens is these gangs of um of of, of people end up basically capturing killing or, or or maybe harvesting the the hybrid children because there's a, a public outcry against them as maybe the source of this pandemic everything's kind of um conspiracy and uh, you know and and sort of weird public opinion on things who'd have thought who'd have thought that would be the case it gets very brutal quite quickly the our hero is a a boy called gus whose nickname is sweet tooth instantly hence the name of the the the, um the show and he's yeah he's dad seeing the the way things are going smuggles him out of town and raises him in deep in yellowstone park in a cabin of their own making and so he's one of the few hybrids to survive to to be sort of 10 or 11 by the time the show is set and and um and his dad is finally killed by um one of the last men who are a kind of a paramilitary group, a little bit survivalist, a little bit sort of proud boys to tie to a kind of contemporary America, maybe. And, um, and they've sort of taken control of America and, and, and they kill his dad. So he sets off to try and find his mum, who he's kind of heard from his father might be living in Colorado. So, um, and along the way, he meets characters that either help or hinder him. But there's also this kind of side story of a, a, a doctor who's kind of living in this suburbia that's managed to maintain a bit of control through very strict policies including mask wearing and all this kind of stuff and but also our sort of armed guards on the gated communities and things and that's really dark if anyone shows the symptoms of having this virus they they basically burn them alive in their homes so i just you know it was oh yeah it's, it's very grim it's it's, it's kind of it, it's nowhere near as whimsical as you think it's going to be you know it has its moments of, of fantasy yeah. but it's um watching the first episode what it occurred to me was it was as if the apocalypse had happened in the world of pushing daisies <laughs> you know it's kind of got that hyper real yeah. feeling very very right. the primary colors are kind of yeah. emphasizing the way it's shot and you've got this quite um not quite whimsical narration but very avuncular narration yes which is, exactly is very similar and it's that it's a i mean i haven't seen enough to really make a judgment but it's a really odd mix yeah, it is. You're absolutely right about this. There's this sort of fairy tale like narration, which seems at odds with some of the things that you witness on 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 screen. Yeah, it, it is an odd mix. I really like it. I mean, you know, it's not just because I like fantasy. In fact, in many respects, while I'm watching it, feeling quite fraught. Actually, it's, it's not really a fantasy show in the way that some of Netflix's other shows are. Um, like, for instance, Cursed um, and so on. It's it's much more of a of a near future kind of vision of a of an american collapse perhaps but yeah it's sort of intriguing it's not as easy a watch as i thought it was going to be but it's mm. it's really it's there's never a dull moment and it's always very captivating on the screen i have also seen the end of the world but a different oh, yeah. kind of end of the world a much quieter <laughs> one i went to see uh, a quiet place part two ah. Ah, how was that well, I really like the first one. Um, I mean, I'm a sucker for like, sort of high concept horror ideas, you know, like uh, Pitch Black, where it's like you've got to stay out of the dark, right. Tremors, where you've got to stay off the ground. And I think, yeah. you know, Quiet Place worked because it had that really cool hook that you've got to be quiet or yeah. these monsters will get you. Um, first things first, uh, my mum asked me yesterday if it's scary like the first one. And yes, it is. <laughs> and um, if you didn't like the nail, the infamous nail oh, on the stairs, the in the first one, which there is an actual... It, call back to is there? Um, oh. yes there, 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 you actually see the infamous nail again there, there are actually there is actually a moment to sort of rival that for the kind of you stakes <laughs> but you know it, it, it's a really good movie i don't think it's quite as accomplished as the first one i think it's kind of lost that element of surprise right which the first one had but it, it's really a continuation it really does pick up where the first one left off aside from this prologue which mm. kind of goes right back to day one 
mm. when the monsters arrive. And that has an absolutely brilliant sequence, you know, where people have no idea what's going on and these monsters attack. There's a brilliant little sequence where you have the Emily Blunt character with the kids in the car and you just see everything from within the car, everything that's going on. Oh and then the camera is just pointing at the windscreen mm-hmm. so you can't see anything else. <laughs> Things just jump out. It's, it's great. And, and then the idea really in this one is that they know now that they can sort of almost battle these monsters if they, they sort of hit microphone feedback with them and it's kind of what they do with it. Um, and obviously, the ah. spoilers, the John Krasinski character, the father, was, was killed in the first one, so they, they're kind of moving on without him. And then Regan, the elder daughter, who's deaf, which was obviously crucial to the plot of the first movie because all the family could use sign language, which was one of the reasons they survived, because they could exist silently. She kind of takes matters into her own hands to spread the word that you can kill the monsters. Then they hook up with a friend from before the invasion, played by Killian Murphy. He initially comes across as a bit of a survivalist, but there's a lot more to him than that. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I think it was kind of uh, dramatic horror. That's not to diminish like horror movies that are sillier and schlockier, because you know there's a time and a place for those, and I love them. But there's something about the way this makes you care about the characters. It's really good. And John Krasinski is such a good horror director. You know, his timing is great. The way that he builds tension. You know, sometimes using silence. You know. It's a film that you're really conscious of yourself in the cinema because you're, if your stomach rumbles at all, you're like, God, everyone just heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's kind of empty lockdown cinema and there's only like five people in there. It's like, oh, God. Um, <laughs> but then you just have sort of noises and, and just the way that things build and you realise that anything could, you know, just something falling over could suddenly have yeah. a monster on you. Yeah. It really only loses it in the last act where it's kind of sort of hangs on a bit of a contrivance um which i think is a bit of a shame though at the same time i I just think this is a really really good horror franchise uh based on a really good idea really well-made films you you can see why it kind of fell into awards conversations a couple of years ago when horror doesn't usually Mm. um you know they're just really really well done will there be a threequel i don't know but they are talking about doing a spin-off in 2023 and i you know these monsters really have legs and teeth and, (laughs) and all sorts I've been watching season 5B or second half of season 5 of Lucifer. So bringing back the beloved DC characters with that comedic crime procedural celestial twist (laughs) seems to do really well. And yeah, it's very much the same show that we've been wanting more of. But I think with this one, I think normally Lucifer's family sort of drama takes a bit of a backseat to the sort of murder of the week. But this half season, his family are very much front and centre and this as the angels battle to be God and daddy comes to visit. And I was going to say, when you say his family, you mean God and God and all, <laughs> I mean all the God angels. and all those angels, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if they were your in-laws? I know. All right, all right. That, that's an awkward meeting, isn't it? That's meet well, the parents sort of maxed. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's the funny thing because they have a family dinner. I don't think it's too much of a <laughs> because even because one, one of the titles is even like family dinner, I think. And uh, Linda is there and I love Linda. I think she's possibly my favourite character. The psychiatrist, she, right, she's yeah, because she is that kind of more sane, sort of normal person, just watching all the craziness. And the mm. poor, the poor woman clearly just like, just like, not sure what to say mm. <laughs> when like angels are like having an argument with with God. <laughs> and one of the moments she does is like she just she just sat there poking God. And I'm like, you just would, you would do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, what does God feel like? <laughs> 
Uh, I love yeah. Lucifer. I can't wait to. I haven't seen the uh, the season. I'm so going to watch it. Is it worth the wait? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it it gets back into what we love about Lucifer pretty quickly. It's a uh, it's definitely sort of building up to the final episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, yeah, I'm, I think one of my friends said recently, it's like, I think they saved a lot of the budget for that final episode. Right. Um, it just feel a bit like that, but there's still the merger of the week. There's still the kind of, you know, selfish Lucifer and his sort of, um, you know, antics really. But at the same time you do see like, so for example, you'll see like characters like Eve come back, although she's very, I actually really liked her in the previous seasons and her sort of relationship with Maze, but it's very sort of last minute, I think in mm-hmm. this. And so you don't mm-hmm. get that same connection and you see a main character die. I'm not going to say much more than that, but Yikes. in true, in true sort of DC fashion, are they really dead? Nobody stays dead in this. <laughs> exactly, because no one stays dead in the DCVS. So, you, yeah, you kind of have that. So there's a bit of more, of, I think there's definitely in the last sort of episode, a bit more of an emotional roller coaster there, but it's fun. Yeah, I, I watched, I think I watched all all eight episodes in like two days. Yeah, so it's it's definitely worth it, I think. But I think the Lucifer fans will be happy. So is that Lucifer done now? I'm certain that it was supposed to be it, right? This was it. This was definitely it. I'm sure I saw them. The, the, this was the plan. And then just as soon as it dropped, I'm sure I saw rumours on Twitter that maybe there was going to be a season six now after all. But I don't believe what I see on Twitter until, until I yeah. hear it from um, from a Netflix exec. I, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. Luckily, it's been officially announced, I think, this week, another season to look forward to. So it looks like it's going to be the final season, though, um, season six. um, Oh, should should, they call it season 666? They should. They should, shouldn't they? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I suspect there'll be a bit of a... (laughs) Oh, actually, the news came via an official Twitter post, which was accompanied by the numbers 666. Oh, right, there we go. Did it come on the the 6th of June? (laughs) I think, do you know, I think it came on the... First, you? <laughs> oh, someone's missing an opportunity. Right. Can you remember? Can remember in two thousand and six when the Omen remake yeah. came out, and That's it was released on a Tuesday because it was the sixth of yeah. June, two thousand and six. Oh my god! Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, clever. The, devil, the number of the devil isn't six six oh six. It's close enough. Close enough. Yeah. So yeah. So what? What? Um, the official Twitter said was the devil made us do it. Lucifer will return for a sixth and final season, like final final <laughs> yeah right this show will never die <laughs> i know well the thing is you know that and you like we've seen lucifer pop up in the arrowverse you yeah. know and stuff like that so and in the the way that lucifer is the type of show it is you could totally see it like popping up yeah. in in random ways or you know um different sort of different crossover versions yeah, yeah well yeah. there was the, there was that miranda crossover for a while <laughs> 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 I loved him on Miranda. It was so good in that. But yeah, they'll bring back Miranda and he'll basically be Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> they'll do it like a Lucifer Miranda reboot. <laughs> and another thing, uh, we'll be back in a moment with part 42, where we'll be talking The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to part 42. Now it's time to introduce this week's guest. Rian Drinkwater is a writer, editor and regular contributor to SFX magazine who's been on the judging panel for the Arthur C. Clarke Award on two occasions. In other words, she reads a lot of books. 
She's an expert on all things Doctor Who and can also crochet at something approximating warp speed. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Hi, welcome. Hi. Thank you. So what science fiction and fantasy have you been enjoying lately? Um, oh, bits and pieces, really. Um, we've been doing, uh, in lockdown, lots of rewatches. So um, in the last few months, I've done like the whole MCU and all the Star Wars films, which are um, quite a, an interesting thing to go back through. Um, after so many years yeah. and it's uh yeah the way the original star wars films have been dated far less than the prequels mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 20 years later. and then there's the question of what order to watch them in right we did it completely randomly actually we did the the new ones and then the prequels and then the originals um, oh, interesting. and the prequels definitely uh stood out as the yeah it just felt so different and so bad <laughs> but um but i have got the thing because i i've got a, a 12 year old son and he um so he got brought up with the prequels and the originals and he always saw no difference i right. think for oh, us wow. looking back they, they feel so different but for kids that have grown up with them all already existing they don't really you know they love the prequels um and the droids and Darth uh more and all that just as much as um the originals and luke and leia and han well it's like with being a doctor who fan as well it's kind of um although you know i see my own sort of like and liking of the show kind of ebbs and wanes and sometimes it's made for me and sometimes it's not but it, as long as kids are getting really enthusiastic about it and um yeah. running around in playgrounds playing it then that feels like the main thing uh book wise yeah it feels um probably not as many sort of science fiction books recently as you might expect but that's partly the clark awards fault um i read um an essay by neil gaiman because he judged it about 20 years ago he judged it two years in a row as well and um he said oh he doesn't say yes to judging awards anymore because he had to read all these science fiction books um (laughs) and found himself unable to read for pleasure um science fiction for pleasure for a long time and i think i looked back and there were about half as many books submitted for the award back then as when I did it where we had oh like, my like 120 books each oh year oh my god you had to read 120 yeah. books oh to, for judging gosh. the awards wow it was crazy it, it was um yeah I still just have piles of them around my house it must um, be really hard to <laughs> shortlist that many as well it kind of become a bit of a a bit of yeah, a yeah you just gotta kind of go for it and um wow. yeah read 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 um I'm certainly impressed. with the the second one um when I judged it the second uh last year sort of um all covid and lockdown and everything happened just as i was coming into the final thing and it was actually quite handy that a lot of my work sort of tailed off because it's like oh now i can just read all day every day because that's incredible Um, i mean that's uh, some you know some people are very quick readers as as are you but for for me i I don't read that many books in a a year let alone in an awards period you know that's uh, that's, (laughs) it's incredible it's a huge effort One book I read quite recently, um, well, I just reviewed for SFX, so for my full feelings on it, do buy the latest issue, uh, Blackwater Sister, which is by uh, Zencho, um, is a really, um, really good um, story of a Malaysian girl who uh, moved to America with her family when she's very young, so has very few memories um, of Malaysia, but now... Uh, I think she's about sort of 19, 20 and is moving back um, with her parents to a country she barely remembers and is uh, then also haunted by the voice of her dead grandmother who's giving her instructions on things she must do. Um, So there's kind of um, a lot to cope with. Um, She's also gay and hiding that from her family. And it's a really, really, really good, interesting uh, book about um, immigration, identity and um, family obligations and being honest with yourself 
um, yeah, that's a really uh, definite recommendation. Uh, that's probably one of their their best sort of SF thing, uh, well, fantasy ish things that I've read recently. Oh, and Inside Number Nine at the moment is one of my uh, absolute favourite TV shows. So, um, so I've only watched the one this series, and that was the first one with the the clowns doing Reservoir Dogs, which I didn't, <laughs> I really didn't like because it's just this is just crossed over too many lines, too many fourth walls, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth walls broken. Um, so how's the series sort of continued? Yeah, yeah, a really, um, yeah, pretty strong. Uh, the, the second episode, I think it was, was called Simon Says, which was about entitled fandom. So <laughs> felt quite relevant. And it was, yeah. um, so how the, the main character was the writer of a fantasy series which had been incredibly well regarded, but everyone had hated the final season and final episode. <laughs> so very Game of Thronesy, and it's you know, um, and yeah, entitled fandom saying, "Well, no, you should have written it like this," mm-hmm. uh, and wanted to put their own uh, thing. So that was um, yeah, not actual science know. fiction or fantasy, but yeah, again, felt very um, relevant. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely part of that world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've chosen this week's rewind subject because 2021 marks 42 years since the original publication of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy novel. I pointed out that it's actually 43 years since the radio series, and then we got into a debate over which one is best. It's the radio show. It's the book. Whichever one... TV show. (laughs) But whichever one you prefer, it's one of the greatest examples of science fiction comedy ever written, and it evolved into the first ever trilogy of four, five, and then six novels. So, can you explain, preferably in large, friendly letters, why The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is so important? Can I borrow from um, a Python, actually? Because when I was doing my uh, uh, reread recently, um, Terry Jones wrote an introduction to the second book, and he talks about the fact that um, it's not so much the characters or the plot, but it's the ideas Mm. that make it Mm. so brilliant. Mm. And I think that it's also, it's the ideas, but then combined with the insanely funny writing i mean reading the book it's just like every paragraph or so there's a line that you would you know consider yourself such an amazing writer if you wrote one of these lines and he's just throwing them out just paragraph after paragraph just incredibly witty lines um that you would just quote for forever um whilst also having these really incredible sort of science fiction concepts and um yeah just doing it all so brilliantly and then in so many different formats as well. And plug for the yeah. computer game as well, if anyone played that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Very influential text adventure. For me, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is um, particularly important. My, I encountered it, first of all, in its book form. So maybe it's the first form that you encounter it is the one that you that you, you love. I mean, I've got a lot of time for the, the radio series, but I heard that later. And and the TV series I, I, I saw in the 80s, but again, it was later. I, I discovered my dad's copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy 1979 uh, edition and, and read that. And it was a, kind of the first book that I remember loving. And I mean, that as opposed to not the first book I ever remember reading. Obviously, there'd been other ones, but it was the first one where I kind of felt myself having a sort of you know, it had some kind of meaning for, meaning for me, and that I wanted to reread, and and so I, it's always kind of been a one to go to go back to. Like um, Rianne said, so much of it is about the the ideas, and it's interesting, isn't it? How so? Like the best science fiction, the best writing, um, and the best literature of, of any kind, of, you know, best best TV shows. A lot of the ideas have permeated our 
um, popular culture, even for those who aren't necessarily Douglas Adams fans, like the idea that the meaning of life is 42. Kind of lots of people know that sort of by osmosis without without ever, you know, having maybe been part of that fandom. And and um, and it's funny, The other, I have a, a, a large, friendly Don't Panic sticker that I stick on the back of my laptop. And uh, and it's funny how when I have that on, the number of people who just spontaneously will uh, will come up and talk to me about Douglas Adams, and I, you know, cross generational. I mean, I, you know, I uh, there was a, a really young guy, in the, probably half my age, in in the uh, in the in the in the pub not long ago when I had my laptop open and I was working, and, and kind of came over and 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 wanted to comment on uh, on, on hitchhikers because my, my laptop had this big red "Don't Panic" on the back of it, um, and um, I unfortunately had to take my laptop into the uh, Apple Store to have it repaired, and uh, uh, and the guy at the Genius Bar was, oh great, you're an Adams fan kind of thing, and 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 so it's you know it's got this sort of um, you know resonance I, I, I think, and I think like Ryan said, it's it's the ideas I think which is interesting. I I'm about to dismiss your hypothesis now, but. Um... So I first watched the movie, I think when it came out around 2005 and didn't really enjoy it and certainly didn't sort of feel the need to explore the universe mm-hmm. after that. And then recently Rich sent me the first um, series of the the radio series, uh, the primary phase, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Oh my I mean, God. That's a, bit, that's a bit of a New Hope style rebranding though. That, it? it was never called the primary <laughs> phase. <laughs> I was like, this is... This is awesome. And I found myself sat in the garden in the sun and just like kind of smiling and slightly giggling away. And it was really just because almost every other sentence is something you just don't really expect to hear. But it sounds so, it sounds great. It sounds very British. And it sounds, um, it's, it just sounds kind of, I suppose it's difficult to kind of describe and that's kind of maybe the, the point of it also. Um, but it, it, the sound of it, especially the radio show with the theme tune and the voices that they hire to, to, um, <laughs> to play the amazingly named characters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's just so like, yeah, it's just a really, um, lovely way to spend afternoons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's agreed, yeah. Right. And I don't know if maybe that helped too, but, yeah, so I was then immediately intrigued and then sort of started to look up. Um, so I'm getting the book, I haven't got it yet, um, How more about, about the universe itself. And, uh, and then was amazed to find out how huge a universe it is. But the popularity that it seems to have maintained, I can, I can understand that now. Mm. Um, as, even as a newbie, I can get why people go back to it. And they were saying something like 14 million copies of mm. the first book were sold, which is just, it's just huge. But yeah, it's, um, so clearly I have got a lot of reading to do now. <laughs> Not 120 <laughs> books. But, well, it's but, also, I mean, the, the, the first book, they're also short and accessible, aren't they? Yeah. The yeah. original. The first book's very short. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're a gr- great thing for kids. They're a great way into science fiction. They're, yeah. they're, you know, right, they're the sort yeah. of things that you're passing around when you're, you know, 10, 11. Because, I mean, I... I remember, well, that's my reading remember. age, so that works. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember how old I was when I first heard it, but my parents just had Radio 4 on in the house all the time. And, <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> and I, it was just, you know, a lot of what's on Radio 4, you you just ignore. You know, the archers still sends me into the theme music, just no! sends me into cold sweats and the archers music. And, and a lot of stuff is like, oh, that's just boring. But the Hitch- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy really sort of grabbed my attention. I mean, first of all, I would just hoover up any bit of science fiction, you know, anything to do with space, whether it was Star Wars, Star Trek, mm-hmm. and this was a great story. But 
there's just so much about it, that radio show that is so brilliant. It's not just the ideas and the, the way it's written. It's the choice of the actors. So you've got Simon Jones as mm. the, the, the everyman, um, yeah. Arthur, Arthur Dent. A character who's just exasperated with the world, but you can totally relate to. And, and a guy who's, who wakes up, finds his house about to be bulldozed, and then ends the day sort of in a Vogon spaceship hearing terrible poetry <laughs> and then gets on this adventure you know, to find the answer to life, the universe and everything. You know, what a journey. But then the voice of the book, Peter Jones, when I read the book, I can't not read it hearing Peter Jones's yeah. voice in my head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Ma- Marvin, the paranoid android, which is just a great <laughs> creation in his, himself. But... It, that Stephen Moore's performance <laughs> has anyone been just so miserable and taken <laughs> such joy in being miserable ever? I mean, that was one thing I think that the Hitchhiker's movie got wrong. And much as I oh, love yeah. Alan Rickman as an actor, he was totally wrong. Mm. You know, Marvin wasn't supposed to sound like Frankie Howard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just he's not just dour; he's just miserable beyond belief. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And Marvin in the film as well is this kind of slightly rounded design as well, which just makes him feel cuddly and toy-like. It's just yeah, sort of not cute, quite right, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. true. Yeah, because I think how how unattractive as a, a design he is in the TV show is just yeah. perfect for him. He should look that odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that um, there's so many great lines of uh, uh, of Marvin's. I, I so desperately find myself wanting to quote. Just you know, you know when when, when Marvin is asked about uh, the uh, the end of the universe, I think, and he says, "I've seen it. It's rubbish." I find myself <laughs> I find myself just wanting to quote that when I, when sometimes when I'm asked uh, my opinion on things that I've <laughs> I've watched, I haven't enjoyed. Just I refer you to Marvin's answer. <laughs> but as you say, it's also it's full of you know really quite incredible ideas because um, it's 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 satirizing you know all sorts of things, but also it's really. Um, reverential about science fiction and science generally, and and uh, you know I, I think the idea of the um, of the heart of gold having the infinite improbability drive, he's yeah. obviously just playing with logic to come up with that. But what he invents is essentially a device that's kind of you know as 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 magic as anything in in um, you know in hyperdrive or in you know in Star Trek and the warp drive. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that Discovery's um, Star Drive in uh, in the most recent Star Trek series. It's basically operating the same way as this. I mean, it's using yeah. the mycelial <laughs> network, but yeah. don't they just press a button and it appears everywhere in the universe at the same time, essentially? <laughs> well, in season four, um, the discovery is actually going to turn into a giant trainer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of great. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, the, the the science fiction principles. What's I, I think what's interesting, and I know is you know we've mentioned that Rihanna's a big Doctor Who fan. Is the Douglas Adams. Was the um, the showrunner on Doctor Who in the uh, in, in the seventies and and was influential on the, mm. the the Tom Baker period and and some of the stories that ended up in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like most of what formed um, Life of the Universe and everything, uh, and uh, and also incidentally some of Douglas Adams' other work like the the first um, Dirk Gently story, I believe were originally yeah. um, uh, Doctor Who stories. Is that right, Rian? They were they started yeah, out as, yeah, the, the as Cricket Man. Yeah. It was a Doctor, Doctor Who and the Cricket Man that was supposed to be. Um, but he wrote most of or kind of rewrote so extensively he wrote uh city of death which is kind of doctor who's absolute high point in the 70s like the highest ratings he's ever had and is yeah every line is um wonderfully funny and just brilliant 
um, yes. and just yeah, yeah so very Douglas Adams absolutely very Douglas Adams that, that's the, the Doctor Who episode that has him saying you're a very beautiful woman probably <laughs> which, is, which <laughs> yes. is very much a thing that uh, you can imagine a, a, a character in a hitchhiker saying but also um, maybe it's a point worth noticing that he's both in the same comedic tradition and actually associated with the Monty Python crew and, and John Cleese actually appears in that that episode, you know that that uh, storyline of um, City of Death, doesn't he? Isn't he right at the end as the uh, yes, like in the art yeah. gallery or something? Yeah, admiring the the TARDIS in the art gallery. Oh, there's also yeah. a um, there's a direct Hitchhiker reference as well in a, a Seventh Doctor story, so late '80s, which is uh, all about evolution. And the Doctor says something like, "Oh, who says that um, humans never invite their ancestors around for dinner?" It's <laughs> like, <laughs> so, well, we know he says that. Yeah, but again, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's another of those just amazing lines. Humans are not yeah. proud of their ancestors and never invite them around for dinner. How do you write a line like that? It's just incredible. He makes it feel effortless. I don't think it was effortless because, you know, I think... Well, I mean, all journalists will tell you there's a famous quote about deadlines that oh, yeah. you know, Douglas Adams loved the sound of them whooshing by. And, and <laughs> you know, on, on the original radio series, he was writing right up to the wire. You know, he, he was, sort of, I believe, sleeping in the studio almost, um, just writing down lines to, to make this thing work. And in fact, he never really finished The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, he did the radio show. He did... He was involved in the, the books, obviously, the TV show. And then even the movie, which came out after he died, there was lots of things in there um, that he'd introduced later on, you know, because he, he'd always been working on scripts. There were things like Homer Kavula, the character played by John Malkovich, and the Point of View film, Gun, yeah. which I didn't oh. think actually really worked. But they were, you know, a lot of that stuff was were, was based on ideas from Adams himself. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and even, yeah, you've got the the radio and then the book and then the TV series telling the same story and often the very same lines, but these little tweaks and little changes that he's just constantly working on it and constantly doing a little bit more. It's very George Lucas, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the TV series for me, I mean, I think I grew up with all of them. So I, it's really difficult to, to place what came first, but um, yeah, the TV series was definitely one that I just watched over and over and over again. And that's almost the definitive version for me in my head. Um, like every version of the lines that I hear and is, is from that. You have the beautiful drawn animations, don't you? They are animations Wonderful. rather than computer graphics. Yeah, they're so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it, hand-drawn, but they look like they've come off a computer. And, and yeah. this is, again, that was something I think the movie just couldn't match. Because, yeah. You know, the animation was a lot more sophisticated, but there was just something about that original incarnation of the book yeah. um, that made it funnier. Yeah, there's so much of that in that you can just stop and look at it. amazing design there as well. I mean, you know, great, great work there. But whenever I think of the the Babel fish, which is itself just a great idea, you put the fish in your ear <laughs> that's somehow evolved to, to convert brainwaves. I mean, why not? But the, I can well, still it, see it, it makes it's no more ridiculous than the Universal Translator, is it? Right, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But whenever it owns you, whenever it's I, ridiculousness, it owns yes. it exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's it's such a, a good idea. But when I think of it in my head, I can immediately see the yellow outline drawing of the Babel fish on the screen as it's explained yes. in the book. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so kind of, out there, which is, it, it's, it's great that that's, that that exists. And it's like that Douglas Adams himself always, I think said that he thought radio was his preferred medium and thought and described it as the most visual of all the media. Um, because of like the way he built these sound pictures up. Um, like you were saying, Rich, about all the ideas that he came up with, that some of them made them into the, the film, which, you know, wasn't received quite so well. It's it's almost sometimes as if that, Douglas Adams was not always the best um, kind of judge of what what 
people want from hitchhikers in a, in a way you know if, if you know what i mean it's 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 as you say the, the tv series and the books were you know are perhaps more popular than the than the than the radio show or the or the film that he was kind of maybe always had as in, in his own mind as the as the definitive versions i don't know i think the tv show is good but i, I think parts of it are let down just by when it was made um you know just the limitations of the time so marvin is great because of when it was made because mm-hmm. they couldn't do anything more sophisticated. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the most blocky, sort of crude, rubbish robot ever. But the way he's designed is just perfect for the character. But then, obviously, you can't do the spaceships as mm-hmm. it's kind of imagined. You know, you, you don't have a trainer spaceship. You're limited to what you can do with a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias. Oh, no, not again. You know, but... You know, Which is finally explained in the later books. It's Agrajag, <laughs> isn't it? It was Agrajag all along. <laughs> yeah. you, uh, oh, yeah, Zaphod's heads as well were pretty terrible. Oh, yeah. That's so one of the things about growing up as a, a Doctor Who fan is that special effects just don't phase me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand that the um, the the heads because they're slightly there's a motor in them, so they sort of slightly move and their mouth opens and stuff. That the they they do a, a rehearsal take and it would kind of be slightly more full of life, and then they would make the actual take and the battery the battery would run down a little bit. So that's why they're always slightly slightly more droopy. Um, <laughs> We're kind of weird. Was would it you on know? tomorrow's world? As isn't this amazing? This uh, uh, like phenomenal special effect we've created <laughs> yeah. in 1980, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This will not age well. <laughs> will you guys say that, like, the Hitchhiker's TV series, I haven't seen it, but would you say the TV series was on par with Doctor Who at that time? Like, as in, as in, you know, how popular it was? Or It's difficult to compare anything to Doctor Who, I guess, just because at that point Doctor Who was 18 years old, uh, had had, you know, four lead actors, <laughs> whereas this is a, like, six-episode TV mm. show. So... I guess it's not like for like. Because I think in my mind, it felt like quite a few things, like like the Vogons, for example, they felt like they were from the Doctor Who Yeah, it was very BBC of the time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, I don't know in terms of popularity. And- I think it was hugely popular. I don't have viewing figures to hand, but I, I have a recollection that it was kind of a phenomenon. I mean, as you say, Richard, it was kind of quite short-lived for what it was, but I think it was really well-received. I mean, I think it got big quite quickly because I, I think when it, it debuted on the radio in, I think it was March 1978, it was put out in a graveyard slot. You know, th- this was a sort of, you know, like Radio 4 still makes comedy mm. where it gives someone a chance. And, and yeah. you know, a lot of it doesn't work, but some of it does. And this was one of those shows that really caught the imagination and it starts getting repeated. And you know, obviously there's a book, then there's a TV show. So, you know, it was very much small beginnings. I think um, Simon Jones, who played Arthur Dent, said he got £25 an episode. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, he said it you know it was pretty decent money at the time it was a job you know they had no idea what they were doing it was this this weird thing that this guy had written no one could have known what it would become yeah yeah absolutely it's also just in terms of um science fiction this we we talked a bit about the ideas but you know, you've got fundamental science fiction ideas here about the meaning of life Mm. the universe and everything you know and, and actually to come out and build this computer that says I will give you the ultimate answer and actually deliver it and then say <laughs> it's 42, but then switch it all around yeah. and say, well, you really, you're not asking the right question. <laughs> yeah. And then the earth was constructed in order to answer the question. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's scope is, as you say, it's deeply philosophical, but also that kind of galactic scale, you, you know, you, it's, it's, it's kind of epic. It, it, it then takes you to, 
the planet builders, you know, the Magrathians who are building these custom-made planets. And so the scope just zooms out and, and, and out and out. And in fact, actually, talking of just sort of, sort of zooming out and out, one of one of my favourite things in the, in the Hitchhiker's books is the total perspective vortex. Yes. The, uh, the uh, version, and I, I, I love the perception of it. And I, and I've, I'm very often taken by the fact that it just creates. It's just this idea that you know that a that a guy has has, has built this um, this sort of exact simulation of all of all of the um, of time and space in the universe uh, according to the, to the book mostly to annoy his wife um, <laughs> but, um, but, the, but this but this simulation is then used as a form of punishment because then if you're in that simulation and you see how small you are in relation to to, to this to this artificial world which you know way way ahead of 20 years ahead of the of something like the matrix is talking about kind of making people believe they're inside this virtual this virtual simulation um it, the idea is that it, it humbles you right because you see how small you are in relation to everything else it's just a great idea it's a great idea about perception as a form of torture but then it's also a great idea about about politicians view of themselves because of course they put say for Beeblebrox in it and he loves it because he thinks he's <laughs> he thinks he's huge he thinks he's massive in this universe. and it's, when yeah. you see that i just wanted to compare something like you just look at it now and think this satire is so true. Now you want to see Donald Trump on Twitter. It's like he's in the total perspective vortex, and he thinks that he's huge in this world. You know that he's that he's the center of this universe. I think it's, I think it's just incredible vision. I would love to have had the opportunity to to meet and interview Douglas Adams while I've been a journalist, but unfortunately, um, he died before I, I got a chance to do that. In fact, it's it's a real shame because I was hoping to to meet him on a trip to. Um, to, to California to go to E3, the big games festival. And, and uh, unfortunately he, he died uh, the, the year that I was due to go. So I never got a chance to, to, to meet him, but I have um, sort of encountered, um, you know, sort of peripheral sort of adjacent um, uh, things to this. I have interviewed um, Owen Colfer who wrote the official, mm. the official um, continuation book. He wrote the, um, and another thing which came out and he was great. O- o- Owen Colfer was, was, was lovely. And in fact, we went for a drive around uh, London sort of uh, to take photographs of him hitchhiking in various places. And he, and he, he was great fun. So we went and, and shared our memories of Douglas Adams while, while driving around, which, which was great. And, um, and in fact, I have a, I have a towel, which of course is a important component in the book. And you're right. There's such useful things with don't panic on it. Thanks to a, uh, thanks to an own, own couple, um, uh, a promotional event that he, that he invited me to in, in, in America, which is great. So, so I've still got that to the, to the side, black and yellow town, but I've also just in terms of Douglas Adams sort of themed events, we mentioned um, city of death and the Doug, and the doctor who connection. Um, Tom Baker's uh, doctor's companion was played by Lala Ward who Douglas Adams would then introduce to Richard Dawkins, the um, the, uh, the famous evolutionary biologist and, and, and atheist, and they're married. So Richard Dawkins and Lala Ward are, are married, and Richard Dawkins became a friend of um, Douglas Adams. And the pair of them, Richard Dawkins and Lala Ward, in 2014, on what the occasion of what would have been, I guess, Douglas Adams' 62nd birthday, I want to say, um, they had a, an evening of celebration of Douglas Adams' life at the graveyard, Highgate Cemetery, where, where Douglas Adams is buried. And I got to attend that, and so... There's maybe only about thirty people there, of which I which I was one, and it was a very moving panel. And, and Richard and, uh, and Lala just reminisced about um, about Douglas Adams and shared some anecdotes which I'd not heard before, which was which is kind of quite moving and fun. So that was good. I was very lucky to interview a lot of the cast. Um, I think in 2008, so it was Douglas Adams' memorial lecture, and they got a bunch of the cast together for sort of thirty years on. Because they did live shows after that, but I think this might have been one of the first times they'd redone it, and and it was incredible to to watch. You know, first first of all, just speaking to them, you know, all those voices that are so familiar. Um, yeah, meeting uh, people uh, off the radio is always really strange for that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the voice in my ear. Yeah. yeah. 
especially as the radio versions of Ford Prefect and Trillion are different to the TV versions. They're different actors. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, that, that was really interesting. And late Jeffrey Perkins, who, who sort of went on to be a really big figure in British comedy, you know, he, he was the producer on Father Ted and, and all sorts of things. He, he was the voice of the book in that, but he'd been very mm. instrumental in, in actually getting the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy made, along with John Lloyd, who obviously went on to work with Blackadder and QI and, and, and all sorts. So, you know, there was a real sort of, I guess, the comedy family tree was kind of forming off the, the back of this. But then you kind of watch them do it live. And, you know, although it is just people with a microphone um, saying lines you've heard so many times before, it, it just still had the power to kind of transport you. Mm. Um, you know, they didn't need anything else because it, it's just so well written. And it, it's like being at a, gig, a rock gig, really. You know, the familiarity is actually one of the nice things about it. You know, you, it's almost like there's these memorable sequences like the whale and the bowl of petunias that you can almost recite out loud. But there's just something to the poetry of the words that, you know, you just hear again and again. Mm-hmm. So I was looking back at the feature I wrote for SFX when I interviewed all the cast back in 2008 for the Douglas Adams Memorial Lecture. And just a couple of interesting things that were said. So Jeffrey Perkins, the producer, said it got an audience figure on one of the shows of 0.0, which is basically this audience is too small to register. And yet it started to get about 20 or 30 letters a day. And in radio, you don't get any letters except for mistaken ones that have gone to the wrong office or complaints. You suddenly realize that there's this huge audience out there that were listening to it, but were not tapped by the BBC. And Jeffrey McGiven, who played Ford Prefect, added, it was interesting to watch how a cult got big so quickly. It was a word of mouth phenomenon and everybody claiming credit afterwards is nonsense. There was no strategy. It went out there and it chimed with people. It's quite interesting how it kind of <laughs> yeah, went from yeah, yeah. nowhere to this yeah. big... I'm reminded, as you say that, of the um, the audience statistics of that um, that great observation in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where where Douglas Adams says that the um, statistically the average population of the universe is zero, um, because if you, <laughs> there, are, there there must be you know we, we believe that there to be an infinite amount of space in the universe, but we know definitely that the population is finite because there's some places where there aren't people. So if you divide any uh, any finite number by an infinite number. You get zero. Okay, that's like the yeah. thing about the uh, the average number of legs that people have is less than two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Although, um, as uh, uh, it actually gets skewed if you take into account pregnant women, uh, the, <laughs> and then, uh, as someone else pointed out the other day, the average number of the average number of bodies that people have is more than one. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. Do you think that the later books in the series uh, live up to the first series, or, or do you think there's a case of diminishing returns? Yeah, I do think they, they get they get weaker. Um, I think, I mean, certainly as a teenager, Life, the Universe, and Everything was far and away my favourite. I loved the the Cricket Wars. Um, there were just whole pages that I knew off by heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was younger, um, So Long and Thanks for the Fish, I think was the first one that I found a bit of a struggle and. And then mostly harmless, yeah, better. But I think those, the first two and then the thirds, I think, um, are the kind of the glory days of it. I'd yeah, say. absolutely. I think I think you're right. And in fact, you know, I, is it the um, the life universe, everything that has Bristramatics, the power of uh, trying to work out a restaurant bill that powers starships? Yeah, that takes over from the infinite improbability. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but uh, but I but I agree. I, think, I I I tend to think that they actually sort of decline from the first one onwards, with the first one, two, three maybe being being great, and then not being not being so good after that. It sounds like they've still got some great ideas, them, like like the bistramatics and, and some great sort of visuals, and they and they play around with. And they introduce a character called Fenchurch, who becomes a you know a, a, um, a 
romantic figure mm-hmm. for for Arthur Dent. So that's that's kind of great. But but uh, yeah, I, I think I think all, a lot of the the quotable lines when people say that they love hitchhikers and they quote things like you know space is big, really big. Turning, that's that's all from the first book. A lot a lot mm-hmm. of the, the, the the groundwork was done in the first book. So there's been numerous versions of Hitchhikers. Uh, do you think they should go back and have another go at a movie or TV show now that you've got kind of Netflix or Amazon money floating around? I'd like to see a stage show. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've done that already. I know. I, they can reboot the stage show, maybe. I think it, it's difficult because obviously, um, as everyone is getting older, you can't use the same actors and their voices are just so pivotal. Mm. Um, like, you're not having Peter Jones to do the book. Mm. You know, I suppose there is somebody out there in existence who is capable of also delivering those lines really well. But, um, yeah, it, it is something that seems so wedded, though, you know, those lines with those actors. It, again, another reason why the movie seemed on paper like it should work. Stephen Fry's got a, a great voice in the kind of yeah. British acting tradition, but somehow again, it wasn't quite right. Um, mm-hmm. would, would I, so I, I've often said that I sort of believe in reboots and remakes. Actually, I think I think that you know that actually um, each generation is entitled to its version of things, and that if we didn't kind of pass on stories and try to retell them we'd, we'd never still have you know king arthur or robin hood or whatever you know or or any of the superheroes really um you know so i, I you know I, I i i kind of like to think that you can reboot a story and and in fact you know hitchhikers being um uh being 42 years old that's that's actually it's, it's you know it's it's a long time particularly if you know the, the if you think about the, the kind of generation that enjoyed it at the time that's like asking somebody at the time to enjoy something from the, the 1930s and that's you know that that's that's kind of really weird if you just think about the time out of time that's passed so so should we be able to reboot um classic and, and much loved uh adventures for a new generation um yeah i, I think so i think that you've just got to work out how to capture the magic of that but probably try and do something completely different with it. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what that is. But also, <laughs> I suppose maybe just accept that those of us who live the original, it's not going to work for us. But it could work yeah, for a new exactly. generation, like like you know, Star Wars and Doctor Who right. and, and all these agreed, things. Agreed. Exactly, yeah, and they won't go away as anymore. We've got the original. Exactly. Exactly. But is this a very different case to say rebooting Batman or Battlestar Galactica, where you are taking an idea and riffing on it, whereas Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? is as much as it is about ideas is about how it's written and how it's said Mm. um you know if you sort of move too much away from how douglas adams wrote it does it cease to be the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy (laughs) Mm. yeah yeah i i i agree and you know that a lot of what we love about hitchhikers is the authorial inserts of of douglas adams own voice but you know i say two things the first the first thing is Douglas Adams also wrote Dirk Gently, and um, that's had a number of actually not terrible um, adaptations recently. You know, the, and, and the series that, that, that runs now is not entirely his voice, but but it, it still runs with those characters a bit. The other thing I was going to say is that the other person that people often say that about is Terry Pratchett, and that's had a you know a troubled history of coming to the screen. But then we saw Neil Gaiman make a fantastic Good Omen series, right? So so I'm actually now I'm going to go I'm going to say Neil Gaiman <laughs> to make a new version of Hitchhiker's Guide ah. to the Galaxy for Amazon. There we go. That's <laughs> well, I, I think I was about to say Good Omen seems the, yeah. the kind of way to do. You know, they, they stuck to with it at six episodes. It's yeah. faithful, um, but also it's updated where it needs to be updated. There was an obvious advantage there in that one of the authors was the showrunner on it. Yeah. You know, one of the guys who wrote the thing could actually be there to make 
the key decisions. And, and actually, Neil Gaiman said that that he wasn't going to let anyone do it. You know, that that was that he wanted that authorial control. And obviously that is not possible with Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I, I think whoever does adapt it, if it happens, and I'm sure it will because, you know, Hollywood loves going back to an existing bit of intellectual property. Whoever does it is going to have to have one of the thickest skins in Hollywood history. <laughs> um, absolutely, absolutely. We've done life. We've done the universe. We've done everything. So we'll leave the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy there. We'll be back in a moment with part four five or six where we'll be talking news and now we enter the third part of our more accurately titled than the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy trilogy of three the news bit but before we dive into the headlines this is a good time to let you know that for our next episode we're traveling back a mere seven years in time to take another look at christopher nolan's interstellar there will be lots of science bits so concentrate and it'll be heading your way sometime in the week commencing 28th of june assuming it doesn't get caught in the gravitational well of a black hole such misadventures have happened to Robbie the Robot's waiting before. And if you've been enjoying your friendly neighbourhood podcast, why not vote for us in the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Award? Just head to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. We've included details in the episode blurb with your podcast provider to have your say in the Oscars of the podcast world. You have until Sunday the 4th of July to have your say. And if you want to remind yourself of reasons to hashtag vote Robbie, all of our previous episodes are still available online. Okay, it's time for the news. Uh, did anybody start watching Jupiter's Legacy? <laughs> I started and stopped quite quickly. <laughs> oh, uh, that's fine because uh, it's already been cancelled. So within a month of its debut on Netflix, they've decided they don't want any more. That's pretty quick movement, isn't it? Yeah, I feel kind of justified now. It is quick, isn't it? Especially when you consider that it is a streaming service. So you would expect that um, people would would pick it up essentially after word of mouth sort of spreads they would give it maybe a bit more time but clearly whatever statistics that you're getting in mark miller on twitter certainly when it started it felt like he was just posting constantly about how it was top you know the top uh, stream thing and it was was number one yeah yeah it was number one on netflix certainly so yeah yeah, how does it go from yeah that kind of heights to nope cancel i bet it cost a fortune to me well, yeah. <laughs> it must have cost a fortune. And also, I guess with Netflix, they're in a position that they've got statistics and, and viewer data that no like TV network right. has ever had. That, you know, they can look at everybody's habits. They can look at when they're watching. Yeah. They, they, they know exactly know... when I stopped that episode. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That they'll have got feedback and, and they'll know that... Uh, they'll know how a show kind of performs at its very start when they put all that marketing money behind it, you know, and maybe they know that if it hasn't hit a certain level by a certain point that it's probably not going to pick up. I'm assuming that's what they've done because it feels like a huge deal when you've got, you know, this is the first show from the the deal they made with Mark Miller, where they bought Miller world and all his comic properties. And for the first show that they put out only last one season it's, it's kind of huge it is when you Absolutely. think about you sort of think back at something like if arrow had had one season <laughs> would they even be in arabis and yet the way that that mark miller has sort of taken you know that cancellation and sort of gone oh well but we've still got super crooks and we've got the animation right. coming out we've got this coming out 
mainly because he knows, I guess, he's got about 10 other projects going on. It's And also, he's sort of also not ruled out that you will see the Jupiter's legacy um, characters again, perhaps in, in a kind of a crossover type thing, that it almost, it feels a bit like, almost like it's an... Uh, been brushed under the carpet slightly. I think I think Josh Duhamel was more upset. Yeah. <laughs> <Mark> Miller. <laughs> You're right about it. Kind of, you know, them saving face a little bit. I think because they they they're doing Super Crooks, which is set in the same universe. So it's almost like they're kind of spinning it as being an anthology series set in the same superhero universe. And the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Jupiter's Legacy was the first bit, and Super Crooks is the second bit. Um, I'm not sure that was always the plan, but that's kind of feels like how they're trying to spin it to us now, yeah. right? Well, I can't get over how brutal it is, though. I mean, cancellation has always been a part of TV, though yeah. I think this is purely anecdotal, but I think it was more common for a show to last one season a decade ago. You know, you quite often found network shows that, like Flash Forward or Terra Nova, like we talked yeah. about a couple of weeks ago, that were kind of culled mm. before they'd really got a chance to grow. But they kind of felt like most shows were getting two, three seasons yeah. at least. Mm. And Netflix initially seemed to be very patient you know, right. those shows would get to three or four seasons and then be cancelled. But not, now we're sort of starting to see shows only doing one. And I, I suspect yeah. it's because they they know the data. Um, and once a show has kind of lost its ability to bring in new subscribers or they, you know, maybe they, they right. just know that a second season of a show that didn't do enough is never going to be worth their investment. Yeah. Maybe it's that brutal. Yeah. I think they probably learned from when they started at a time when they were probably less brutal and probably putting a lot of money in when into shows potentially that weren't, weren't necessarily worth it. I think it's probably multiple reasons, but I think last year, Netflix, if I remember the statistics right, so Netflix was cancelling about a third of the new shows and keeping two thirds. And I think on the networks, it was the other way around. So terrestrial TV was like, they would often cancel about two thirds and keep a third. And now it's almost like it's switched, switched a bit. And if you look at the money that Netflix puts into mm. its originals, I think that's got to be a massive factor. Subscription's got to be another one. So I think it's, it's funny that they're in a way it can look strange that they're, cancelling their own Netflix originals and yet taking sort of leftover shows like Lucifer. Um, But it's because I think that's got that built-in fan base that they can then potentially transfer into subscribers for them. Question that may sound a little bit stupid, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Could it be a victim of superhero burnout, which may seem like a ridiculous thing to say when you've got Marvel, Marvel everywhere, but has people's appetite for superheroes that aren't Marvel heroes sort of worn out? We've still got the boys doing um, great guns for uh, Amazon, and Amazon also had Invincible as well. So something something's working over there. Um, and I suppose Netflix has uh, Umbrella Academy as well, which is a little bit different. I, yeah, I yeah. think it's probably the competition. I think because you've got so many superheroes out there, you know, why watch something mediocre when there's such great stuff? I yeah. think that's probably it. Plus, you know, time is a factor. Like if you can't in a in a netflix show because you've got all the episodes there if you get you can get to episode four in like you know two hours and you're like i'm i'm not really enjoying it i'm not going to see what happens you know, it's not like a we'll see what happens next week or something and um so people make their minds up about a show much more quickly as well i yeah. think there's also i think to a degree 
um, Rich, in answer to your question, I think, to, you know, sometimes Netflix is competing with itself. And we've already spoken about mm. how I'm watching Sweet Tooth on Netflix. You know, I, I, I've only kind of got room in my life for maybe one or two things on Netflix, um, you know, and you mm. have to pick pick yeah. amongst the, you know, the, all the things that it's trending, telling me that I should watch. I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch them all. I just, I'm just physically, haven't got the, the time of the day. So you've got to pick and choose amongst even its own shows. I don't know if there's a, a bit on also coming out of lockdown, because I'm definitely feeling right. like I have seen way too much of my living room this last year. Yeah. And um, so it feels like at the moment, whilst over the last year, you know, Netflix has been a savior. Um, at the moment, it feels like stuff's got to work really hard to, to keep me in front of the telly. Onto superheroes, they don't do cancellation. Um, in the Marvel universe, um, first of all, it looks like Prince Namor is going to crop up in the Black Panther sequel. Now, isn't Namor kind of like the Aquaman of uh, the Marvel Universe? Um, yeah. Now, Aquaman used to be the uncoolest character in DC. He's kind of been sort of claimed back to the side of cool. Do you think they're going to do that for Namor? We've said before that, you know, a lot of the, the characters we now think of uh, as uh, headliners for Marvel probably weren't everyone, anyone's favourites back at the, um, you know, at the start of the of the MCU. Uh, so um, the rumour is that Namor's going to be played by Tenok Werther. Mm, yeah, but excitingly, I thought as well, sort of staying in Wakanda, uh, they've been talked for a while about a Wakanda TV show, uh, a spin-off from the Black, ha- Black Panther movies, and it looks like Akoi, played by Danai Guerrero, is going to be the star. That sounds great, yeah. right? Yeah, bring on some Michonne action. I mean, I <laughs> we saw them in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, so we know, you know, that they can do TV. Um, and those moments that they were in that show were just epic. So having like a whole show of it, I think they'll do a great job. And she's obviously got the ability to carry the action. So, and that, and that's obviously key, isn't it? But um, it'll be interesting to see what, what story they have with her. Cause it seemed, it felt like the, um, the Wakanda um, storyline um, would carry on in a way potentially in in captain american the winter soldier but um because obviously the way that it was left with like with bucky is quite important part of his storyline so i don't know if uh if it's going to be completely separate to what's going on in in that and in in the movies so i guess we'll guess we'll find out well i think it's going to be really interesting to see what they do i mean they've obviously announced that the Black Panther sequel is going to be called Wakanda Forever. Right. We don't know who the focus of that film is going to be. Mm. You know, will it be someone taking on the Black Panther um, mantle now that Chadwick Boseman has died? Will it be an ensemble thing? Um, and then, you know, obviously a TV show could do mm. whatever it wants. I think Wakanda, you know, from what we've seen from the movies, it looks like such a cool world to, to be yeah. in. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like they could do pretty much anything they want. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things is essentially because we got to see the Wakandans not in Wakanda, right? And mm. how they are in the kind of real world. Um, so whether the... I'd be quite interested to see see that because I, I imagine that the movie will focus more on the Wakandan setting. And also the Dora Milaje in action is, as you said, is always good to see. I mean, those bits in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you know, where they are, they're fighting, they, just, they are so cool. <laughs> They they turn up with purpose and they seem to have their 
you know their 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 sense of mission and their their ability to deliver it in a way that that kind of holds everything together when when they when when they turn up there's there's sort of no sense of doubt whenever they were in that 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 series you sort of knew exactly what they were going to do and they achieved it and that's kind of great because there's a lot of uh, you know characters in the Marvel universe are sort of uh, bouncing from 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 crisis to crisis so i i think you know you sort of feel a little bit comforted whenever the uh yeah. dora milad show up right and i think so i think i think you know it'd be great to see them in action again it's kind of that that perfect trifecta isn't it of that purpose and then their poise and the precision mm. it's not like going to be some all-out bloody mm. war when they turn up necessarily it's like <laughs> look at you and you're like <laughs> and get you and you won't even know that they've hit you almost but mm. yeah so I, yeah I love I love their fighting style and it in it contrasts the the others especially in Falcon and the Winter Soldier really well just to make the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe thing more complicated, obviously we've got Spider-Man who is in the MCU, but then we've got Sony's Spider-Man-ish movies with spider-villains like Venom and Morbius. Uh, now there's one rumoured with Aaron Taylor-Johnson who played Quicksilver in the Marvel Cinematic Universe until Division, when it was played by Evan Peters, uh, who's going to turn up as Craven the Hunter <laughs> in a movie which may or may not be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is the universe about to explode? <laughs> Quite possibly. He was also Kickass, which has got which got referenced in um, in uh, One Division as well. So apparently, that was an accident. Really? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't mean Amazing. to do that. So you had everyone on the internet go, "Oh, I love that Kickass reference." Just complete coincidence. <laughs> what? Yeah, he's going to join the ranks of people like Chris Evans, who have played more than one Marvel character, thanks to the uh, the power of uh, of of uh, licensing and uh, and, and, and so on. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's great. I mean, actually, do you know what? He's he, he was also in um, Tenet, if I'm not much mistaken, as the he soldier, was. right? Which yeah. almost unrecognisable in that, mm. you know, not not a headlining character, but but a pivotal one. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think he's great. I, I'm, I'm I think it could be could be interesting to watch. I think it's just going to be interesting as well to see how they develop this. To say, you know, could Spider Man crop up in Venom, and therefore could Venom jump across the MCU or, or will licensing and rights sort of take over? I mean, ultimately, it probably doesn't really matter, but, you know, fans will have those conversations. Mm. Now, I don't think he was directly talking about Star Wars, but it's heavily hinted. J.J. Abrams, in an interview, said, uh, there's nothing more important than knowing where you're going. Um, <laughs> if only he'd worked that out four or five years ago, right? <laughs> I mean, who could possibly ever have predicted it would be a bad idea to not work out to set up a load of questions and just not know the answers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's J.J. Abrams in his mystery box, isn't it? We've known that what he's like from back from the days of Lost. Uh, so we should have been, we should have been prepared. <laughs> we should have, we should, we should have known. It was the the kind of consequences thing of we'll give yeah. it to someone else and he'll put all his ideas in, and then we'll have someone. Well, that's the original person who'll have a completely <laughs> different idea of what he wanted, and we'll yeah, yeah. sort of drag it screeching back to his vision. Consequences. That's funny. Yeah. And shouldn't the mystery box be to confuse other people, not the people who are doing the writing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. It, it reminds me of you know, in Alan Partridge, back in Knowing Me, Knowing You, where he's doing a political debate and he just says, political hot potato, catch. <laughs> <laughs> it's the screenwriting equivalent of that. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, JJ Abrams said the, he, he's, uh, he feels like he's learned that lesson a few times now. Well, um, we'll. Does we'll, that therefore we'll... mean 
he hasn't learned the lesson. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll wait and see on his next project, I suppose. When I paid to watch Rise of Skywalker, I was thinking, I'm paying for you not learning your lesson first time, JJ. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, JJ's clones. JJ1, yeah, Vader Rise exactly. Skywalker, JJ2, whichever. <laughs> Are you saying that JJ1 and JJ2 don't talk to each other? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most hotly anticipated TV shows on Netflix um, is The Sandman. Um, There's been talk about an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's uh, graphic novels for ever. Now they've announced that there's a few more people in the cast. So Stephen Fry is going to be in it. Uh, Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you excited by the new casting? Yeah, it looks looks really interesting. It's, it's, It's got me... I mean, I love Sandman, but I've always been happy to let it just be a comic. It's like, it's a perfect comic. Um, and yeah, now it's, it's starting to intrigue me more, um, seeing the, the, what, where they're going with it. I'm like, oh, actually, maybe I, maybe it, it will work in another medium for me. An interesting thing from my perspective is I don't, I've never really been into Sandman. I'm aware that Lucifer, a show we spoke about um, earlier in this episode, is actually um, originated in in Sandman. That's that's um, Neil Gaiman's vision. But they've um, they've got uh, Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer in this yeah. version of Sandman, right? That's one yeah. of the casting that's been announced. So that's interesting. Um, but you know, yeah. she's she's great, and I, I have no particular emotional attachment to Sandman like a lot of people do. So um, I, I just thought that was that was worth remarking. But um, yeah, I look forward to seeing it. Of course, the sad thing that seems to be associated with so many announcements is the internet getting upset about some of the casting, about non-binary actors, um, changing race of actors. Though Neil Gaiman has come out fighting and said, I give zero about people who don't understand, haven't read Sandman, whining about a non-binary desire or that death isn't white enough. Watch the show, make up your mind. Excellent. That's kind of what it needs, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And by the way, you can employ that bleep again. I know, the bleep's coming out again. Um, thanks Neil I cannot understand people that people that moan about it it's like but you can't possibly have read Sandman or or really anything Game of written I mean yeah Desire was always non-binary the idea Mm. that death I mean they appear as different races and different species uh, when they interact with things you know you see you see Sandman um, as black when he's uh, to people you see him as a cat so Mm. the idea that you know death is not always this little white goth girl Mm. Um, yeah, the idea that people and, and uh, people complained as well about the because they had the non-binary um, actor playing Desire, they put the pronouns of all of the the actors in this trench, and people were complaining about that. And it's like, but but you know, Sandman's got trans characters. And, you know, how can you say that you have any association for Sandman right. if you're anti things like um, pronouns or a non-binary actor? I think it's a, yeah. just a good example, isn't it, of the. Uh of the internet sort of having their opinion when actually it's just not informed, but wanting to yeah. be heard because, you know, they, I guess actually they are trolls, but they, they care almost more about that than the show, the characters, yeah. what the story right. is yeah. about. Like, mm. you know, it's just, I think, you know, they're sort of getting lost in, lost in it all. But I think Neil Gaiman as well, like he, his his characters like i i only know in a way from like the tv show so i'm i'm happy that he's making a series because for the sandman because that's going to be my introduction to it 
And yeah. Uh, yeah, and so and looking the fact that he's cast those people like Gwendolyn Christie, like Jenna Coleman, that intrigues me to watch it because I know that these are you know like high caliber actors, and so yeah, um, yeah. So I think there's there's going to be equally a bunch of people who may never have known much about Sandman who'll be like, oh, I'll give that a shot now. Neil Gaiman did a great job of adapting. Uh, good omens he's a great mm. choice of his, his own work and we know that he, he can make you know tv and, and make the the right choices there so the fact that he's very hands-on with this and he believes in it should surely appease all fans um mm. and if they're if they're not then that they're says that they're, they're yeah they're in, exactly exactly they're mm. not fans or they're enraged by by something else which they want to take a good long look at themselves not all films are superhero adaptations or redos of films we've seen before. Um, Hugh Jackman, uh, he's back. He's a new film. Uh, it's called Reminiscence. It's out in August. Uh, also stars Rebecca Ferguson from Mission Impossible. Kind of looks a bit Inception, uh, mixed with Strange Days, mixed with AI with the waters rising. Uh, what do you think of it? I can't wait for this. I thought the trailer was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is right up my street. So this is actually um, uh, written and directed by Lisa Joy. And she, you will know her work from Pushing Daisies. Mm. And she worked on Westworld, which I thought was amazing. I thought the trailer looked fantastic. You're right, Rich. It looks like the kind of thing that should be coming from the desk of Christopher Nolan or, or something in that vein. But I thought it, it, it looked glorious. And I love the fact that it's kind of playing around with memory again, a, a sort of a a Nolan-esque trope, um, but 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 also something that's very core to Westworld again, which which Lisa Joy worked on, and and the the, the idea that once you kind of know that and look at it, there's definitely those sort of elements of identity and time and perception, which which you know which which I think you know make for great science fiction. Uh, I thought the visuals in it were great. I I, I you know I uh, Hugh Jackman I could watch endlessly. So yeah, I, I I saw that trailer and immediately had to rewatch it, and now it's it's like gone right up there on my on my to watch list. Yeah, there's some really yeah. interesting sounding concepts, I think, it's going to be. Yep. Well, I think it's nice to see a trailer for a film where you don't know that much about it. If I like a trailer that had been crafted by a filmmaker rather than someone trying to sell a film, you know, it's quite yeah. intriguingly put together. It's kind of hinting at what the movie is about and doing enough to sell it without really telling you what it is about. And Hugh Jackman, I think, can carry pretty much every, anything. I mean, he is such a versatile actor and, and a proper leading man yeah yeah he's got he's, he's so watchable i mean the the, the movie's also got um uh Tandue newton in it who of course was in westworld uh which was yeah. you know uh, uh lisa Doy and, and um jonah nolan's project so um i i yeah i thought it i thought it looked great i thought it looked intriguing i i, I like good high concept science fiction particularly ones that play around in that kind of philip k dick tradition of of identity and time and memory and um and uh and it's it's got a little bit of a as you say, which is slightly kind of water world. Look at it. it. It appears to be set in a near future where the waters have risen and, and cities are cities are being destroyed. But uh, so we can expect some sort of some epic visions of the world. But but the fact that it kind of narrows down to these sort of um, you know visions of, of Hugh Jackman immersing himself in a Minority Report bath with you know electrodes <laughs> on his head in order to in order to um, in order to kind of relive bits of his life that are missing. I, I you know yes, yeah, I'm me up. If you're going to make a film that is a remix of lots of films. These feel like good films to use as your ingredients. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. And Disneyland in California has opened an Avengers campus. So big question, can we have a Robbie the Robot's waiting trip? Oh, that'll <laughs> be game. good, wouldn't it? 
surely it's uh, it's it's for work purposes, so it's a tax write off, I would assume. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I I'd love to go to it. Be amazing, right? I assume I haven't been to. The, well, obviously, no one has in the last year, but I still want to go and have the uh, the Millennium Falcon experience that, that Disney has. Well, that's it. Having gone through my whole life, like when I was a kid, I was never fussed about going to Disneyland or Disney World, you know, mm. Mickey Mouse and all that. No interest at all. Mm. Now I'm significantly older and I really want to go to Disneyland. <laughs> They've got Millennium Falcon and Avengers stuff. This yeah. probably isn't right. I shouldn't be admitting this on a podcast. I think oh, it's the no, right I'm, I'm, podcast to admit it, though. I think it's the right podcast <laughs> to admit it. Because I think we all, all kind of feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm with you. We we should get out there. Yeah, no, it look it look, it looks amazing. You know, it, it's it's uh uh it, it, you know it, it's this sort of Stark Industries property. Property. It's got you know. I, I think it, I think it'll be I think it'll be amazing. I think I think I, you know Disney knows how to make a good spe- spectacle. I was talking about this the other day. You know, there's lots of um sort of talk now about how uh, properties are. Um, intellectual properties kind of stories take place in this sort of transmedia world where they're they you know there's a there's a movie and there's a game and then there's a spin-off tv show and it was probably a comic to start with but this is nothing new i mean we were just speaking about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which has appeared in in half a dozen formats since the 70s but disney was doing this kind of stuff back in the 30s 40s 50s they yeah, absolutely knew that that once you saw a, a movie you would want to buy the lp and then you'd want to go to the you know the the the, the theme park and hang out together and then you'd want to watch you know you'd, you'd want to watch the you know, get the get the get the coloring book or whatever they, they absolutely knew this all along and 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 disneyland is um since its inception has been a a, a place that absolutely knows what it is that people want to want to experience so uh, i'm assuming they'll, they'll they'll do a great job with this hanging out with the avengers sounds as good a place as any to end uh thank you very much rianne thank you uh, you're welcome thank you very much for having me thanks Rhea. awesome to have you don't forget to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards we'll be back sometime around the end of June thanks for listening so long and thanks for all the fish <laughs>